It is the opening days of the Second Anglo-Sikh War. Finding its advance across the Chenab, blocked at Ramaga, the company force considers its options. Daniel Sanford, a young subaltern, is told that one of his men has foolishly strayed beyond the pickets and been captured by the enemy cavalry. When a few days later the soldier is magnanimously returned with Cher Singh's compliments, Sanford notes wearily in his diary the reason why. He is such a perfect fool that they could get nothing out of him, no more than we. Though questioned by several of the staff, he could give no information whatever. He said that the murdering thieves had toyed him to a log and put a guard over him, but sorrow a bit did he get to ate our drink, and he was half famished. He is a perfect yahoo, just caught from the wilds of Ireland, and can speak very little English. He belongs to my company to its credit, but as we only want hands, not heads, it's no matter. So, the man concerned could just be one of these raw recruits pictured by Lady Elizabeth Butler in 1879. This episode of military history affords an ironic insight into the colonial army's racial perceptions of itself. Here a metropolitan English officer mocks the comic behaviour of the Irish agricultural recruit, but when not managing the common soldiery, this same officer was answering smartly to his commander-in-chief, Sir Hugh Gough, born 1779 in County Limerick. The Duke of Wellington famously replied, the suggestion that he was an Irishman, by pointing out that being born in the stable does not make a man a horse. But as we might hope, Sanford did not call his commanding officer a Yahoo, which cannot be explained by assuming that Goth had forsworn his nationality and become an honorary Englishman. Our band went to play at Lord Goth's tent, writes an anonymous grenadier in March of the following year, it being St. Patrick's Day, and Lord Goth being a son of Erin's lovely isle, he ordered us an extra dram of rum per man. How are we then to explain this discrepancy? Why is an officer who hands out rum to the music of the pipes a son of Erin, but the trooper who drinks it, dances a jig, and gets himself captured an Irish Yahoo? What I propose to show is that these are not fundamentally different kinds of Irishmen, but rather partakers in a broad range of stereotypical characteristics called Irish. These qualities can be foisted on a subject as a stereotype, or adopted as an identity. They can be used on a sliding scale of intensity, and when worn voluntarily, their interpretation by observers is inflected by the personality and social rank of the wearer. India, because it was typically where discourses of race and caste within the British Empire were at their most pervasive, was a significant site for the creation and enactment of these ideas of Irishness, which were then exported back to the British Isles. What this paper will show is that this Irish simulacrum, or what this Irish simulacrum was, and what purpose it served, and how it came to constitute an identity which Irishmen serving in India had to engage with and then negotiate. What then is this Irishness? Most importantly, it is a discourse defined within military culture. The Irish were thought to naturally lack discipline, but to possess fighting spirit and abundance. And India and later South Africa were the major testing grounds for this racial quality. The Irish have been reputed for bravery and impetuosity within the army, at least since the Peninsular War, and these ideas developed alongside broader social stereotypes of Irish comic stupidity, drunkenness, sentimentality, and religiosity. But the advancing 19th century witnessed the accruing of a sentimental green-tinged patina to the fearsome figure of the fighting Irishman. It is this period that sees the production of such mass-market images as this 1840s music cover, uh, showing the sorrowful leave-taking of an endless sea on the shores of Dublin Bay, or this engraving, uh, depicting one of the mercenaries known as the Wild Geese, who left Ireland in the 17th and 18th centuries to fight in continental armies. 
Both images evoke a long tradition of Irishmen serving abroad and shape the enduring trope of the Irish soldier as an exiled wanderer who is at home wherever there is fighting, but who yearns privately for the land of his birth. Um, these ballads feed into more chauvinistic songs of the High Imperial period, such as What Paddy Gave the Drum and Queen and the Shamrock from the Boer War. Through such images, the cheerful, obedient, sacrificial Irish soldier became a common figure in British imperial popular culture. And as the 19th century progressed, Ireland of its land agitation and Fenian terrorism was often perceived as a grave threat to the empire. Conversely, these images from colonial wars were reassuring, and they presented an image of Irishness that was recognisable and knowable. Hence the British public started to make sense of John Bull's other island through their military representatives. What they saw were loyal and simple men, comical rustics, whose inherent courage was marshalled and managed by officers drawn mostly from the English or Anglo-Irish aristocracy. Now, the institution within, its, within the, which this relationship of command was established was the British Army Regiment. Now, British regiments are unusual in that they are closely tied to certain regions of the country, and this is reflected in their name and their uniform and traditions. And because conscription has hardly ever been used, they have historically recruited their soldiers by appealing to national and regional, well, regional sentiments and to local identity. The Irish regiments, of course, would appeal to Irish regions. Their recruiters would say things like, come on, you men of Munster, or show the Queen what Dublin boys can do. Uh, but they would also appeal to general ideas of Irish supremacy on the battlefield, as in this late recruiting poster from the First World War. What you can see from these posters is that this is not just general flattery. They are designed to resonate with a martial part of the Irish identity, because this was something which the regimental tradition itself had sought to instill in Irish life. Ireland, mainly because of its poverty, was overrepresented in the British Army all through the 19th century. And as a result, it became, to a much greater degree than Britain, a military society. Note how easily the red uniformed dragoon fits into this Irish street scene from 1891. You can see it, it was red, it was in black and white, of course. Uh, the genius of the regiment was that once you had been recruited, you would be expected to assimilate and take part in its distinctive esprit de corps. And what this would chiefly involve in an Irish unit would be adopting a new regimental Irish identity. You would arrive, of course, with all sorts of baggage. Protestant, Catholic, urban, rural, English-speaking or Gaelic-speaking. But regional or sectarian divisions were not tolerated. Many a fight there was, recalls an Ulster Protestant of his early days with a draft of Galway Catholics, till we began to know one another. The regiment, in effect, forestalled Irish nationalism and overprinted it with loyal patriotism based on an idea of Irish martial valour. Historically, Irish rebellions have been regional affairs, and what the regimental system did was suppress local affinities in favour of an entirely regimental Irish nationality, fundamentally loyal, of course, to the Crown. You were expected to be proud of your status as an Irish warrior in the Queen's service. And this new identity was instilled by your participation in regimental culture. For example, if you were an Irish guardsman, you would march on parade to the tune of Come Back to Erin. You would look after the regimental pets, an Irish wolfhound called Brian Boru. And St. Patrick's Day would be celebrated with banqueting, hurley, and best of all, the presentation of the Royal Shamrock, followed immediately by mass. A strong element in regimental identity from the mid-19th century onwards was service in India. Until 1914, it was the major theatre for army activity. Indeed, for some units, India became a second home, and the history of service there became deeply ingrained in the regimental tradition. The racialized Celtic mythology surrounding Irish regiments was nowhere demonstrated more forcibly than at the greatest display of imperial pomp the British ever staged in India, 
1911 Dubba in Dili. Uh, picture here. Not only were the Connaught Rangers chosen to serve as King George V's personal guard, lining the streets as he passed by on horseback, they were also presented with new colours. These are like the regimental standard, an occasion which necessitated the strange ritual of their anointing with holy water by the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Agra. On the right. Uh, India is important to our discussion for various reasons. The first is the sheer numbers of Irishmen who served in India. The East India Company, which governed the subcontinent until 1860, maintained its own huge armies, and exploiting the British army ban on Catholic soldiers, it established its own recruiting depots in Ireland. The result was that from 1828 to 1850, the Bengal army drew nearly 48% of its recruits from Ireland. Even after company rule was abolished, there was at least one Irish regiment of the British Army stationed there in every year, from the Indian Mutiny in 1857 up to Irish independence in 1922. Moreover, India was attractive to the colonial aristocracy of Ireland, the mostly Protestant Anglo-Irish. Until 1871, to become an army officer, you had to purchase your commission, and the younger sons of these often rather impoverished landed families frequently couldn't afford this and opted for Indian service which did not come with a price tag. This helps to explain why, in Indian colonial fiction, the archetypal Irishman is rarely a doctor, a missionary, or a civil servant, and of these there were many, but almost inevitably a soldier. And if racialized representations of Irish soldiers were popular with an English audience, then India was significant the chief arena uh, where Irishmen served England in her wars. Now, large numbers of Irish troops were deployed in India during the Mutiny or Great Rebellion of 1857 to reinforce the flagging colonial armies, and so they are particularly prevalent in accounts of this period. Sir George Trevelyan relates a story from the Siege of Delhi concerning a comic Irish sergeant who appeared to have emancipated himself from all discipline and went into action armed with a shillelagh. Among other feats, he danced the jig without hat or bonnet under the midday Indian sun. In these stories can be seen a psychological deepening of so-called Irish traits drunkenness, cheek, religious devotion, an innate comedy, and a rapid change from ferocious battle cries to sentimental tears. Such tales also evidently entered Indian legends. Compiling his landmark British Social Life in India in 1938, Dennis Kincaid's mind instinctively turns to a man like uh, this corporal of the 88th when he describes the strange episodes that resulted from the sudden disembarkation of so many wide-eyed provincial recruits at Calcutta. Foremost among these heroes of these amusing stories was, of course, the Irish soldier, or worthy son of Erin, who is shocked to find in the Indians a race as loquacious as his own. At last, in exasperation, he addresses the crowded street with an unmistakable Hibernian brogue. Silence, silence, terror boys. Don't have so much talk in witchy. But dad, when a man opens his mouth, show half his strength just pops out of it. And this reveals the most telling element in the composite and often contradictory Irish stereotype. The Catholic recruit is thought to possess a sort of racial understanding with the Indian native. This is very significant because the troops themselves, who normally came from the bottom of the social hierarchy back home, relished in India a chance to be white men, to have servants to boss around. Through their regimental affiliation, they themselves were servants of the Queen, and this endowed them with a new means of self-definition, an imperial identity. But meanwhile, the senior officers who managed both India and Ireland effectively as colonies were perceiving them in analogy with Indian subjects. Their views are strongly coloured by the theories of martial race, which governed the recruiting policy, policies of the native Indian army. 
Expanding on the popular scientific racism of the time, official formally dictated that certain Indian castes or communities, such as Gurkhas or Sikhs, were inherently suited to soldiering, whilst others, such as Bengalis, were considered effeminate. Interestingly, many of the chief architects of this policy, such as Lord Roberts, Lord Kitchener, had Irish backgrounds, and an Irish civil officer, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, declared in his memoirs that, like the Sikh, the Celts turned soldier for sheer love of fighting. The fictive analogies between Irish and Indians also took in their supposed comic, impish and superstitious characteristics. Hence infantile Celts and Orientals, both in need of adult supervision, appear to totally allied in the eyes of yet another Anglo-Irish officer, Sir Garnet Wolseley. Reminiscing on his years as a young officer in Burma, he recalls a blatant cheeking shown him by some temporary striplings under his command. The young Wolseley is struck by the disciplinary action taken by his superior, an old and amusing Irishman full of quaint stories. Instead of reading them the Articles of War, Colonel Grattan, Royal Irish, chooses to throw his desk out of the way, rush at the guilty men, and literally kick them out of his office, calling them limbs of Satan. As I think of the whole scene, Wolseley comments, I feel all the more how necessary it is that Irish soldiers should have Irish officers over them, who understand their curiously Eastern character. In literary representation, these crossovers between Irish and Indian stereotypes enables the former to fulfil what Victor Turner would call a liminal role, slipping into uh, the interstices of a cultural fabric impenetrable to the thoroughbred Englishman. Kipling's fiction, of course, is full of characters, most notably Kim, whose Irishness enables them to make tantalising forays into the native world. One romancer of the Bengal army called these men Protean. The purpose which these patterns of representations serve for colonial knowledge is complex, and goes beyond reminding the Englishman and the Irishman of the latter's undiminishing need to be governed. The Irish constitute the adverse side of the two-dimensional British colonial character. To understand them is an imaginative shortcut to understanding the native, the other. And this knowledge is the power of a commanding officer. As we've already established, these discourses of stereotype were common currency. India was a place where everyone was inevitably highly conscious of race and permutations of race. So how did the Irish represent themselves? Did they speak and act as they were expected? Or did they articulate a dissenting language or negotiate a new identity? The options available to you and the attendant dangers depended on your position in the army hierarchy. Anglo-Irish officers like our original subject, Lord Goth, carefully maintained a dual affiliation. As soldiers, they were Irishmen, and often popular with the rank and file. But as members of an English officer corps, it may also have been necessary for the Anglo-Irishman to distance himself from the other side of his native character. When deployed in the officer's mess, this identity switching is a strategy which reveals a certain social insecurity and needs to act the Irishman to be accepted as an Englishman. This can be seen in the Indian mutineer antics of Kendall Coghill, who cuts a somewhat grotesque figure amidst the ruins of Delhi. From the Cork family, Coghill allows his brother officers to call him Paddy. He also contrives to loot a trove of jewellery by concealing it inside an old Irish broom with a broken wheel, which he then purchases in the prize yard for four rupees, giving the impression that he is doing so for the sake of affection for anything reminding me of the old country. The national sentiment paid, he concludes. Indeed, it seems to have served him well throughout his early days. But while he exploits his Irish roots to cut a dash in the mess, exaggerate his valour, and excuse both his indiscriminate boasting and thieving, he also needs simultaneously to denigrate Ireland and the Irish, distastefully comparing the ruins of post-siege Delhi to a city in the grip of an Irish district council. Um, but if Anglo-Irish officers were capable of manipulating their identity, what of the common soldiery? 
much written about what their memoirs tell us of their self-perception and reaction to stereotype. Their voices are distinctive and varied, but it is a mistake in my view to regard them purely as subaltern voices. The evidence suggests that on the whole Victorian Irish soldiers in India regarded themselves as servants of the Queen and members of the ruling race. The papers of Private Keating, a Dubliner of the Rifle Corps, overflow with poems of his and others' composition, many of them fervently imperial and loyalist. One even condemns the Phoenix Park murders of 1882, which took place during Keating's Indian service. They also reveal that Keating's identity was by turns British and Irish. He's capable of lamenting for Old England, as well as the Emerald Isle, while on service during the Second Afghan War. An equally loyal and imperial voice emanates from an after-dinner speech made by an anonymous Ulsterman of the Royal Irish Fusiliers about 1880s India. Intending to be read aloud, it is a nostalgic and rhetorical piece, and the author concludes by remarking to his audience, I dare say you would like an opinion as to the qualities of our countrymen as soldiers. The old soldier says he can do no better than quotes the famous passage from the memoirs of Lieutenant Ship, an English officer who described the merits of the Irish during the Napoleonic Wars, including their promptness to obey, a hilarity, a cheerful obedience, and willingness to act. In this, the speaker serves literally as a mouthpiece for English views. He willingly collaborates throughout his narrative in the construction of the military Irishman, even when the bare facts of his reminiscences tend to disprove the stereotype. The culturally aware Ulsterman's recollection of a genuine clash of East and West at Ralpindi, in which some of his less educated friends <coughs> ignore his warning not to flirt with a group of Punjabi women and are nearly murdered by an angry mob of villagers, is at best a rather unhappy and ultimately prosaic misunderstanding. Nonetheless, he embroiders it into an amusing anecdote of the feckless Irish penchant for getting into a scrape. He sets it up, moreover, as an encounter between India and the Irish race as a homogeneous whole, naming the soldiers involved as Dan Hurley from Cork, O'Sullivan from Kerry, that's a prairie boy whose name I forget, and your humble servant from the county Antrim, a fairly representative party you'll allow. Private Keating, meanwhile, indulges even in his private writings in the Irish stereotype. His papers contain more than one anti-Irish joke, along with the fictional will of a comic Irish farmer, Timothy Doolan of Barry Down Derry, who bequeaths the sun, moon and stars to all the world, and his last pint of whiskey to his neighbour, Peter Rafferty. Uh, the Connaught Ranger in this photograph from an Indian regimental album appears to be literally playing just such a role in some sort of amateur dramatics. The majority of Irish recruits, as the anonymous Ulsterman notes, were religious, <coughs> and it may be that these two relatively educated men, with their adoption of the comic Celtic discourse, are expressing an anxious social aspiration to be not so much Englishmen as citizens of the empire. In this they demonstrate that a certain flexibility of identity is available to the common soldier as well. As well. Men whom we might call today the respectable poor find ways of rejecting negative Irish traits like drunkenness or criminality, but retaining the badge of martial valour. It was possible for such men to try and pick and choose facets of Irishness and construct their selections uh, from their selections a good Irish identity. Uh, Scott Cook has emphasised that the Highland of Empire was an equinox so which the ideologies of imperialism and of Irish nationalism could possibly be pursued in parallel. Keating's is therefore a healthy national feeling, indulged in the poetic safe language of young Ireland. He copied out Thomas Davis's uh, Song of the Battle for example, into the notebook he took to Kandahar, a poem which ends, For Erin and her cause boy, hurrah. Hence rebel rhetoric is co-opted into a loyal identity through the culture of the military. Now this is not to suggest, of course, that all Irish soldiers were obedient imperialists, but the sentiment does appear 
is generally in correspondence between one man and a fellow countryman from his region of Ireland. In other words, mutinous combination on the basis of a local fraternity. The army's officially sanctioned Irishness was a mould which only finally broke during the eventual politicisation of the army in the First World War and the crisis of identity that resulted. Men were obliged to choose between nation and empire, Ireland and Ulster, and their diaries tell a story of sometimes traumatic division. Uh, curiously, rebellion was expressed within the same discourse of Irish martial valour as the British army had long employed, and continued desperately to overstrain in its recruitment drives. There's two more posters here. Uh, another. <laughs> but the fighting tradition was now animated by more convincing actors with the new martyrology of the Easter rebels. Here we see the same tropes in those posters used for a different purpose. Meanwhile, in India, a small but significantly political mutiny took place in Jalandhar, among the 1st Battalion Connaught Rangers. Although the depth of political feeling in the army has been played down by Babington and Carston, the finding by one William Gould of the 1st Battalion Welsh Regiment of uh, this insignia, carved into the bedstead of every cell which housed the mutineer at Dugshai, or so he claims, suggests that it cannot be discounted. What is certain is that an enduring and latterly Celticized story of Irish rebellion was forged here, within the military culture of colonial India, the last occasion, indeed, on which a British soldier was shot for mutiny. The story ends with Irish independence and the disbandment of the southern Irish regiments like the Connaught Rangers. This was the last Galway recruit for the Devil's Own. Up until six months before disbandment, enlistment for men like this was an opportunity for those with none better, and they took it. It is life stories like his on which Bartlett and Geoffrey base their proposition that there is such a thing as an Irish military tradition that has contributed integral elements to the modern national identity. For some time, the new Irish state seriously struggled to assimilate old army men who still regarded foreign service as the making of their lives and who felt resentfully that they, on the Western Front, had also, like the Easter rebels, been fighting to achieve Irish sovereignty. But what is perhaps finally happening now is the eventual absorption of the colonial soldier into the appealing national legend of the Janus-faced Irish rover, one face looking boldly towards foreign shores, nothing to lose, the other gazing back sullenly at the richly evocative Irish landscape.